You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. If this is a consulship, where is the ambassador? Commander, tear this ship apart until you found those plans and bring me the passengers. I want them alive! Holding her is dangerous. Word of this gets out, it could generate sympathy for the rebellion in the Senate. I have traced the rebel spies to her. Now she is my only link to finding their secret base. She'll die before she'll tell you anything. Leave that to me. This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. Don't be too proud of this technological terror you've constructed. The ability to destroy a planet is insignificant next to the power of the Force. Your sad devotion to that ancient religion has not helped you conjure up the stolen data tapes, or given you clairvoyance enough to find the rebels' hidden fort. I find your lack of faith disturbing. It must be a decoy, sir. Several of the escape pods have been jettisoned. Did you find any droids? No, sir. If there were any on board, they must also have jettisoned. Send a scanning crew aboard. I want every part of this ship checked. Yes, sir. I sense something. A presence I've not felt since... He is here. Obi-Wan Kenobi. What makes you think so? A tremor in the Force. The last time I felt it was in the presence of my old master. Surely he must be dead by now. Don't underestimate the Force. Obi-Wan is here. The Force is with him. If you're right, he must not be allowed to escape. Escape is not his plan. I must face him alone. I've been waiting for you, Obi-Wan. We meet again at last. The circle is now complete. When I left you, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. Only a master of evil, Darth. Your power is a weak old man. You can't win, Darth. You should not have come back. Hi, everybody, and welcome once again to GeekFest Rants. My name is Carlos Perone, and today we are going to focus on some collectibles. And starting off, we are hitting Star Wars in a very, very vintagey way by going all the way back to 1977 to look at a poster. What could be probably considered one of the earliest Star Wars posters available for mass purchase, for mass consumption, if you will. And that is a classic Darth Vader poster. We're going to examine the poster, how we believe it was made from the research we've done, the different other ones that existed within that line that was available. The one that I own is the Darth Vader one. 
And we're going to look at the background of the person that is actually in that costume and, and some of the other opportunities that he had in order to portray Darth Vader for a lot of this promotional, marketable materials that were put out, you know, initially for Star Wars. Then we're going to look at another different, very kind of collectible, the Eagle Moss Star Trek Enterprise 330. This is a ship that I've talked about in the past that I've recently acquired. And I'm going to just give you the lowdown on what a wonderful quality collectible this is with not only the actual model representation of this ship that we've really never seen on air, you know, on a movie or on a show. It's just been talked about and depicted in different manners, but never actually seen. And also this little bonus booklet that came with this particular piece that gives you just about the most background I've been able to gather so far. It is just a fantastic piece. So let's get started with our Darth Vader poster. You can collect them all. You are a toy! Battery's not included. Just get those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. That's the six million dollar man's boss. It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. For today's posters of the month, I'm only focusing on one poster. And that is a Darth Vader Star Wars poster. What makes this different than, than most other Darth Vader posters is this is what is believed to be the first ever Darth Vader poster released in 1977. If you're not familiar with this poster, it is basically Darth Vader posing with the word Darth Vader. Underneath, he's holding what looks like to be a purple lightsaber, kind of pinkish purple, with a very light... I would say kind of like a, a very gray, blue, cloudy background looking sort of background. And what looks like to be two suns, very small, over his right shoulder. Unusual poster. Now, this is the type of poster that really, I would say, kind of blends into the background and blends into, into nothingness, if you will, of traditional posters for Star Wars. Because, you know, when you think of Star Wars posters... Notably, what we really focus on are the one-sheets, the movie one-sheets. And granted, there are so many iterations of those one-sheets. Sometimes you have a preview poster, sometimes you have a, you know, coming soon or something like that. Then you have the first original, original one-sheet that was released for the first actual release of the film. Then you might have a secondary one for a second release and a third one, you know, and so forth and so forth. Especially back in the 70s and 80s when certain very big blockbustery kind of movies would be released multiple times sometimes you have alternate art posters especially again with star wars there's a plethora of unbelievable material that was created ahead of time and then they decided which one to use for the film and then they kept those additional pieces of art done many times by different artists and then that was used for a soundtrack or for a book or for a magazine or for something like that so Again, primarily when you're thinking of these posters, you know, you're, you're thinking of that. This is a little different. 
as you can probably see on the little piece of art that I included uh, with uh, this particular podcast, uh, you could see it is somewhat of an iconic picture. This poster has shown up on multiple films in terms of the background poster that it would be probably in a kid's bedroom. So it's kind of interesting, you know, how this poster keeps showing up time after time after time. It is, like I said, one of the first ones ever released of a Star Wars character that was not associated with, let's say, for example, some kind of um, giveaway or a purchase of an item that you get a free poster. As we have talked in the past about, for example, the Burger King or the Burger Chef glasses, you know, that we, you could get a free poster, you know, included with your purchase and that sort of thing. No, this was, uh, you specifically had to buy this poster. This poster was done by a company called Factors Etc. Incorporated. And you can see that at the bottom left of the poster, it says Factors, etc. Incorporated, Bear Dell, USA, Image Factory, Incorporated, Hollywood, California. And on the right-hand side, you have 1977 20th Century Fox Film Corporation, TM Trademark 20th Century Fox Film Corporation. This is what differentiates that poster, is the fact, like I said, it was exclusively done to be purchased. Now... The history of the poster, you know, it's kind of simple and it's kind of odd in a way because, yes, you do have Darth Vader and and he is obviously wearing the Darth Vader costume from Star Wars, the first film. He is holding a purple lightsaber, which is bizarre at the time because I guess, you know, the film hadn't been complete, but they were already kind of putting together these posters or at least the art or the photographs for these posters. The poster does look like a combination of both art and photos, so uh, what today would be called Photoshop or uh, additional art, you know, painted on, airbrushed, you know, when you airbrush more stuff into the poster. And what's interesting about this poster is that this is a series, from what I understand, of four different posters, character posters for the film. You had a Darth Vader, you had a Luke Skywalker, a Princess Leia, and an R2-D2C-3PO combo poster. Now, these posters were apparently done sometime in the summer of 77, right around the time where the movie is either about to be released or just released. It was shot, I believe, in Los Angeles by a photographer called Bob Seidman, and he was apparently a very famous, kind of like a rock and roll photographer, did a lot of work for Rolling Stone magazine, you know, that kind of thing. So this is where they kind of brought in a heavy hitter to do some promotional photographs that can then turn into some kind of, you know, advertising kind of material, such as these posters. Now, what I found on the internet is some behind-the-scenes photos or publicity photos of different takes that were shot. And what's interesting is that even though you will see some of these posters show up on Uh, you know, for sale and that sort of thing. There are other photos that seem to have shown up, you know, as part of this particular shoot. So in other words, I've never seen a Han Solo poster of this specific kind. However, there are shots of Han Solo, Harrison Ford, in costume as part of a similar photo shoot. Not sure if this one took place in Los Angeles. It could have taken place somewhere in England because at the time Harrison Ford was shooting, I think, Hanover Street um, around that time. And the reason why uh, you can kind of tell that the, the timing is a little different in terms of when these things were photographed is because of the hairstyles of 
specifically Mark Hamill and Harrison Ford. There's a series of photos of Mark Hamill posing in his costume. He doesn't seem to have exactly a lot of the pieces that he might have had in the film, but that's pretty close. But that's not very distracting. What's distracting is his hairdo. His hairdo looks different. And again, you're talking about actors being brought in after the fact to do a photo shoot to kind of recreate their characters. But most likely at that time, you know, they're preparing or they might be in the middle of shooting another film. In the case of Mark Hamill, he also looked a little different because he had also been recovering from that car crash that he had, which resulted in a lot of plastic surgery he had done on his face. So he's starting to already now look like the Empire Strikes Back version of Luke, not so much the the young uh, Star Wars version of Luke. So, yes, there are a couple of photos of him that look a little different. Eventually, they did put out a photo of Luke also as a poster. He's kind of pointing the blaster, you know, off the shoulder of the camera. And they they airbrushed some uh, laser bolts kind of flying past him and a laser bolt coming out of his blaster, his particular blaster, which uh, I believe it's like a Stormtrooper blaster or something like that. Now, one source indicates that the airbrushed added material on these posters was done by Ralph McQuarrie. I'm not sure. I can't confirm that, but it is a very good possibility. Again, the person that took the pictures just did the pictures and that's it. All those pictures ended up getting used in different mediums. For example, some of these photos could be found in the art of Star Wars, you know, the old books and some of the more current books. All of a sudden you see the actors in their costumes like, oh, that looks really cool. But they're like, wait a minute, but the this looks a little different. These pants look a little different. Um, this prop looks like their hair looks very different. That's one of the major things. With Princess Leia, Carrie Fisher, they were pretty much nailed it in terms of her hair was pretty much exactly the way it was in the film. So that was an easy one. With Darth Vader, he looks pretty good. But some of these sources that I'm reading about this particular photo shoot is that Because of the matte scramble to get the film on and things were so chaotic around that time, some people claim that the helmet that he's wearing is not even a real helmet, uh, you know, an actual film prop, but more of a reproduction that was done by Don Post Studios. This is a company that was responsible for some of the manufacturing of the masks that were sold later on, you know, when the film was released. And, you know, some people claim that some of the Again, some of the uh, costume accessories might not be completely original in terms of where they came from. They might have been bits and pieces from other parts of the movie that were created, you know, to, to be kind of slapped together for this photo shoot and for some future things that were happening. But eventually, apparently, they did end up using some, you know, original pieces. And I mean, from the look of it, it looks just like, I mean, to me, it looks just like it. I couldn't tell the difference. But, you know, there are people that say, yes, to the helmet, you know, this piece is off and that piece is off and this looks a little different and blah, blah, blah. So, yes, it is possible. Like I said before, Harrison Ford, same thing. You know, it's Harrison Ford, but it looks different. Something's off. His hair is much shorter. He's not using the actual blaster that he has in the film. It looks like they gave him a some kind of replica or an offshoot or a prototype because he does look like he's holding a stormtrooper rifle for a lot of the photos. But then at one point, he's using a blaster that, again, people are saying it is not precisely exactly the one that he had, you know, when he was filming the movie. R2-D2 and C-3PO, that's a weird one. There's not a lot of pictures available 
of them. Uh, there are a few pictures of them posing and that sort of thing. But in the final, final poster for them, it would appear as if, you know, some of them, the, the posters that I've seen look a little more animated in terms of animation looking, like uh, hand colored. So it is possible that they might have taken the stances of the pictures and then kind of colored on top of them or colored around them because a lot of them do have a star background with the word Star Wars and this and that. But... I have not seen too many pictures of them posing together in a finished composited poster. There are, you know, individual shots of them, but it does look a little different than what these final, you know, finished up poster, touched up posters from Factors look like. As I mentioned before, my particular poster is the Vader poster. And that is, again, the one that you are going to find the most when it's being referenced in other material. Movies, like I said, on the wall, you'll see the kid's bedroom with this particular version of the Vader poster. And going back to what I mentioned earlier about that some of the props or some of the accessories of the poster might have been put together at the last minute from other parts and specifically being linked to the Don Post Studio source is because the man in the costume for this photo shoot, the man in this poster, is not David Prowse. Apparently, obviously, you know, Mark Hamill has to be Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford have to be those people for those photo shoots. But obviously, when you're dealing with somebody in a costume, you don't really need them to be there. So what you can do and what they've done in the past is hired other people, obviously probably a lot cheaper than hiring the real actor, locals, if you will, especially if you're doing something, you know, in the United States where these other actors like C-3PO's actor, Anthony Daniels and David Prowse, these are British guys who live in England and it would probably cost, uh, you know, quite a lot of money to bring them in every time they needed to do some kind of an appearance. And then you pay them their fee and all that stuff. So instead what they did is they hired people locally who would be able to, you know, make these kind of appearances for photo shoots or special events. And one person in particular that I'm going to talk about is Kermit Eller. Kermit Eller worked at Don Post Studios and one way or the other, he managed to catch this gig of being able to fit more or less because he's a pretty tall guy into the costume and he came you know for this photo shoot to be able to do it and there are a number of interviews out there that you could find he ended up doing it for about four or five years starting in 1977 so whenever you would need a Darth Vader person in a costume for uh, any kind of special appear a mall opening autograph signings the Academy Awards, for example, when Vader appears, or any kind of special event where you'd need a Darth Vader, that's where he would be hired and he would show up, put on the costume, and do his thing. As a matter of fact, one of the things he ended up doing was also the Man's Chinese Theater uh, signing, the concrete cement footprint signing. You know, he was part of that production crew, uh, you know, when they needed a Darth Vader to show up. So he ended up doing this for quite a, a number of years, like I mentioned. The Academy Awards was a big deal. They, you know, the Star Wars took home a number of awards. And there, at one point when one of the Oscars was presented, they brought out, you know, some of the characters. He was one of them. Um, he apparently also did a Donnie and Marie dancing number for the show where they had... Again, this is a different time. This is a time where... You know, you have all these 
TV specials like the Holiday Special. You have a Bob Hope special, Donnie and Marie, The Muppets. You know, there's a lot of these specials, variety shows and talent show type of things that this is how you would promote. This is an old-fashioned way of how some of these things would be cross-promoted. You would send your 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 actors, or in this case, your 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 second-tier actors out, you know, to kind of promote your film in that manner. And in this particular case, you know, he didn't have to, obviously. Uh, you know, they couldn't hire the real ones, so they brought in these other guys in costume, and he would do that. Now, apparently, this wasn't the first time he had done something like this because, I guess, because of his height and and, and because of he wor- you know because he worked at Don Post Studios, he apparently played Mayor McCheese, and he also wore some Big Mac costumes used for some uh, McDonald commercials in the past. So, you know, this is a guy who was kind of used to doing that sort of thing. In one of these articles, he talks about how difficult it was to get into the costume. He said it would take, you know, once you have it down and once you know how to do it, it could take up to about 20 minutes to do it with hopefully an assistant who knows what they're doing because there's so many parts and it has to be done in a certain order. And as you continue to add parts to the costume, the costume gets heavier and heavier and heavier. By the time you add the cape, it is a pretty heavy, super hot piece of equipment that you're wearing. As a matter of fact, he said at a certain point, you also had to add the uh, the chest box with lights, and they were powered by, I believe, pretty large D-cell batteries. So there was a lot of batteries also that he was, you know, strapping onto, you know, in order to do this. The question of the lightsaber in this picture, for some reason, and again, it was <laughs> pretty difficult, I guess, you know, it was hard enough to create the lightsaber effect, you know, on the film, and they didn't work the way it wanted it to work. They ended up basically rotoscoping and, and animating the, the, the lightsaber glow for the film itself. So on this picture, what they did is they took some pictures of him standing in this pose, holding a different lightsaber holding no lightsaber, you know, all different types to see which would work best. And according to, again, to certain sources, what they ended up doing is animating, airbrushing with possibly Ralph McQuarrie, the lightsaber that he happens to be holding in this shot, along with the blade. That's all animated. That's all airbrushed. I would go as far as to say that the the actual saber doesn't even match the final Vader saber that we see on the film. And from the props that we've seen, this looks different, which is nothing new. These kind of errors happen all the time. Continuity, really, I guess they weren't that much on the ball in terms of trying to make it all look right. And the color of the blade. Purple is nowhere near where those sabers were at the time. So I'm not sure how they ended up with that color. Ironically, many, many years later, yes, we do end up with Mace Windu having his famous purple lightsabers. It's like, why not? You know, it's... In the uh, interviews uh, that I've read, it, it also talks a lot about uh, how he made these uh, convention or, or more like mall appearances, opening, you know, grand openings and that sort of thing. And that at a certain point, he had to figure out how to give autographs, you know, how to sign things. So he worked on his, just like he did for the concrete signing, the cement signing, uh, Darth Vader, you know, he had to come up with a Darth Vader signature because obviously he had to stay in character. So he could not sign it himself he had to sign as the character so he he kind of perfected a darth vader signature this way you know you can kind of tell if it's real or not because of the you know the size of the letters and that sort of thing he also talked about how he was interacting with people a little bit sometimes especially at some of these appearances and he wanted to kind of know what vader would sound like so this is something that's 
you know, with the secrecy these days, it, it probably would not have happened that he actually would be privy to some of this stuff. But he says what happened around that time was the movie was about to come out like in another week or so at one point and, uh, you know, mass release. So he, he was able to attend one of the editing sessions and whoever happened to be there allowed him to record on his own personal recorder some of the Darth Vader lines. This way he can go home and start practicing those lines before when he made these appearances. So it's really, really interesting. You know, like he talks about how these days that would never happen. They would never allow somebody to go there and record, you know, right before a movie of, of this, you know, stature comes up. But again, this was back when nobody knew if this movie was going to be a hit or not. So, like I said, he did it for about five years, right around the time after Empire had come out. And that's when he kind of stopped making these kind of appearances. You know, somebody else obviously took over the job. And he says, you know, yeah, it was very, just like the actors, you know, it was very difficult walking with the costume. You know, you can only see in front of you. And that grill in his, in the face of the mask is where the only way that you could see in front of you, like to the floor, to, your, to try to see maybe your feet. So when you're walking, you can't, you can't really look down too much because your, your eyesight is limited. And he said that as he got more and more involved, you know, in perfecting his walk and perfecting all the things needed to, you know, to embody the character, he would even sometimes paint his face so that if people really got close, they couldn't see in through the eyes or the, the grill in the front. Because that's one of the things I remember that you could see even in film for the first movie for A New Hope is that if you really look closely at Vader's eyes, they're kind of reddish tinted, not so much black, they're more red. And you can see through sometimes that there are some eyes behind that. So it's, you know, it's interesting how, the, you know, he even had to kind of compensate for those kind of technical issues with the costume. Now, we got to remember that, uh, you know, th this is one of many people that theoretically got to wear an official Darth Vader costume on different occasions. Not only do you have Dave Prowse, you also had James Earl Jones's voice, obviously. Then you have the stuntman who did the the fighting sequences. Then you might have had another stuntman who did the more, not so much the fencing, but the, uh, the fall, falling down and that kind of more uh, acrobatic type of stuff. Then you have stand-ins. There's little stand-ins left and right. That would do some of that work. I've seen pictures, uh, I think from Return of the Jedi, of a completely different person wearing the costume because all they were doing was close-ups of the hands. So you have a guy dressed up as Vader, not even with a helmet on because they, they would never show his face, but it's a completely different person, you know. And again, I don't know if these people are ever credited. Then you have all these guys that make the appearances. Now, these are official appearances, you know, associated with promoting the film or stuff like, for example... Some of the documentaries where you all of a sudden you might have a Darth Vader looking person in the background or an R2-D2 and a C-3PO. Obviously, R2-D2 is easy. You don't really need Kenny Baker back then to be in the costume because all they would do is use a radio control one. But even with Anthony Daniels, there were many times where he would, when not available, they would bring in someone else. You know, granted, hopefully they didn't have to use the voice because once you have to use the voice, it's a little more difficult because, you know, they need his voice. But that's been happening for a very long time. With the prequels, I believe, well, not only did Hayden Christian get to use the costume at the end of the movie, but there was other, uh, I believe there were other actors who got to use the costume too as, you know, stand-ins and that sort of thing. With the new movie, Rogue One, there's yet another actor now playing Darth Vader, you know, on screen. So we've had so many people wearing this costume. And again, the funny thing is that technically, this is the first time with this poster 
where somebody who is not on film becomes the first person to officially promote the movie and do something official for the movie while having to wear a Darth Vader costume. So this poster is, is has more history than you would realize, not only as it being just another silly poster that people were buying at the time for probably a buck or two or something, but... The fact that, for whatever reason, like I said before, you don't see too many Luke Skywalker or Princess Leia posters, you know, portrayed on other films and that sort of thing. You always see this Vader one. I think this one even made it to the movie Poltergeist and so many other movies. So, this luckily is a poster that, if you're interested, it is not too hard to find. The prices will vary. I would say anywhere from $15 to $30 might be the price that you get it, depending on what condition it's in. I found it at a kind of like an antique mall type of location, and they were asking for quite a bit of money, but I was able to talk them down on the price by not including the frame because it was framed. So I, I basically more or less half the price by leaving the frame behind and I, I framing it myself because, again, I rotate these posters so they're not going to stay up too long. But it is cool because, again, it is vintage. It is original. It is one of the firsts, just like those Burger Chef other posters that we talked about at a previous episode. So to me, this is very, very special. Let's take a quick break now and listen to a little spot from our friends at IC Robots. If you're into anything having to do with retro, vintage toys and 80s shows and all kinds of 80s and 70s vintage retro kind of games, television, movies... All of that geek culture that we love here at GeekFest Rants, take a look. When you visit their site, they have a podcast called The Toys R Us Report, and we strongly recommend it. So have a listen. Tune in to The Toys R Us Report for your weekly dose of pop culture talk that's out of this world. Movies, TV, toys, comics, and more every Wednesday on the IC Robots radio network at icrobots.com. What are you waiting for? It's time to get down or come up. All right, we're back. Thank you guys from IC Robots. And let's continue with our show. Today I want to talk about a collectible that I just received called the USS Enterprise XCV-330. This is a particular ship having to do with Star Trek that... I have talked about in the past, I believe when I was talking about my small collection of Enterprise or Trek-related ships, specifically Federation ships, I have a number of other ones through Hallmark and other companies, but at that time I was focusing mainly on Federation-style ships, primarily Enterprise brand ships, you know, named ships, the classics. And one of the ships that I highlighted at the time was this particular one, the 330. The thing about the 330 that fascinates me is the fact that it looks zero, absolutely zero, like anything you've probably seen before. And it's a ship that was only referred to as a painting, as a drawing, or as a model on previous either episodes or movies or, you know, Star Trek-related media. You know, it's been referenced a few times, I believe, also on other forms. But the closest we've ever gotten to actually seeing it is in those, you know, picture or model forms. Where does it fall in the canon of Star Trek? Well, again, because it is so briefly 
touched upon, it is something of a, of a mystery. The ship is a very unusual design. What you have is a, a long cylindrical body, let's say, that is then attached through a fin, think of it as a shark fin, coming out of the back, and it goes up, 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 and then it attaches to two circular rings. So it's a very different design. The rings also, from as far as I can tell, do not rotate around this ship. They're solid. Based on the information, you know, the printed information that's out there, as far as how that ship functions, it basically glides through space with those rings attached. But again, it is not kind of like a, you know, like a 2001 kind of scenario where you have a spinning wheel, you know, to create artificial gravity, that sort of thing. It, it would appear, again, according to the text that I've read, that the crew cabins and the work environment is the cylinder in the middle. And the purpose of those rings is engine related to kind of separate the engine, the, the dangerous, let's say, engine parts, propulsion, you know, of this ship away from the main cabin. It's interesting. Now, the manner in which I've gotten this ship is through a company called Eagle Moss, which I've mentioned before. I mentioned them that they're like the latest and greatest when it comes to not only Star Trek, but they've been producing some other lines too, but they are really, really advanced, very nice looking. I don't want to call them high end. I would call them kind of medium end because believe it or not, there is stuff and there has been stuff that's even way more bigger and expensive than this. The only experience that I've had with Eagle Moss was another ship that a friend of mine, same friend, had also given me, which I believe was the Enterprise J. And I did mention, I remember at the time, that this was a different kind of ship in terms of how they manufacture them. They're, they're metal. They're heavier, obviously, than plastic. They're super, super detailed. They have a nice, clean, smooth, black, heavy base that holds them. But at the time, when I received that other one, it was probably, I would say... I would say about four or five, four inches wide, because it's a, it's a different shape ship. It's a very odd shape ship. But it was heavier than your, than your average. You could kind of tell the quality of these things are really good. Well, I just received in the mail this one now from my friend. And the first thing that struck me was that this is a, a different level of ship. Because first off, it comes in this super, super fancy... Well, fancy, very ornate kind of box, a very, a very well-made box. And the ship itself, it's almost, I would say about seven or eight inches long. And maybe I would say it about four or five inches in diameter, you know, the rings. So it is much larger than I anticipated. You know, I, I, again, because I'm not entirely sure what the measurements are supposed to be, I really can't tell if it's in proportion to the other Enterprise. Now, obviously, I know they can't make all these ships in proportion to each other because then you would have a serious manufacturing problem because I'm sure some ships are supposed to be way, way bigger than others and some are supposed to be way, way smaller. So you can't just make them all, you know, in the same scale. However, this is just bigger than, than the other one. It's super unusual in design, and you've seen the pictures. I'll show you more pictures. You know, I will put the pictures of the art. And the thing I love the most about it, and it's the thing that, again, this is the, 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 exactly the type of thing that happens with this kind of fandom. Star Trek, Star Wars, you name it. Some obscure thing resonates with a fan. 
And with me, it's the ship. And we start to do research on it and figure out how much information there is out there. And the, the less information, it's almost like the better because you've tapped into this nugget of information that is ignored, let's say, by, let's say, 99% of people, obviously, because most, you know, not everybody even gives <laughs> a hoot about Star Trek. But even Star Trek fans, you know, even within Star Trek, the Star Trek community, let's say, there's going to be only a certain percentage of them. And I would say, if you look at people that are into Star Trek, I'm going to go with about 75% of them probably don't know or care about this. Uh, you're dealing with the 25% that are just a little bit more obsessive than your average fan. And I'm sure that there's plenty of other things having to do with Star Trek or just about any other fandom that people have grabbed onto and, and you know, researched and worked at and theorized on. But this is one of mine. This is one of mine uh, specific ones that I share with, with my other friend who, who also was, you know, he was like, he mentioned to me, I remember that the, the only information he was able to find came from this other book that I've, I've talked about it before, where it was a, you know, it was like a history of, of space flight. It, it was an older book put out right around the time of uh, the motion picture. And granted, a lot of that information doesn't apply anymore because... Not only uh, do the dates don't coincide with real space exploration that's happened from, you know, since the late 70s or the early 80s, but it also contradicts a lot of the canon that's been established in all the Star Trek movies, TV shows, books that's, that, that have been out since then. So, they, they've again, they've, they've had to readjust a lot of that, you know, to make up for that and this is one of those things that is so insignificant that really nobody really bothered to really put any serious serious time into like i said this particular ship comes in a box and the box also includes a very thin magazine size booklet the booklet only has about let's see about 18 uh, 19 pages and about i would say about half of them let me just count them here yeah, a little over half of them. A little over half of them are all about this ship. And and this is a booklet that comes from Eagle Moss also, that company that, that manufactures them. Now, the thing about this ship is that it's funny because I was planning, and I am still planning on, on doing a piece sometime in the future about a series of Star Trek books that have come out uh, called Star Trek Shipyards. And what they're doing in these books is they're taking uh, certain chunks of time and chronicling the development of... In this particular case, Starfleet ships. The first book that I already own covers the years 2151 to 2293. But one of the reasons I bought that book, and at the time, you know, I was hoping that they would kind of do a, a section just on this ship, on the 330, was that they would do that, and they didn't. And in that book, they explained that they're only dealing with actual ships that you actually saw on the show that that were actually part of the show they're not dealing with the kelvin timeline they're not dealing with alternate timelines and that sort of thing they're only dealing with stuff that happens you know within the the the, the frame of, of of classic star trek and because this particular ship and that's funny and the reason i'm i'm, I'm bringing this one up specifically what that i was looking because i was able to find i don't know if it was an interview or a review of the book 
And they did mention that. They, they, they did mention that, you know, oh, we were hoping to be able to see the, you know, the 330. And they were saying, well, no, because see, the 330 was uh, falls under one of these categories where the ship was never seen, you know, flying around anywhere. All we saw was a model and a painting and, you know, some pictures here or there. So it could not be included. Now, the book is also, I believe, made by Eagle Moss. So a lot of the uh, the details and the specifics uh, they come from the same company. So there is a, a similarity in them, which is really good. And I've been hoping that if these books take off, because I know there's at least another one coming out pretty soon uh, that deals with the ships in the future, meaning, you know, next generation, you know, going forward. That's th- those uh, th- that era. But I mean, I know they're doing, I believe, um, I think either Klingon or, or just other species ships. So, you know, it's a line that, Maybe at one point they might be able to put out a book, just a book alone on theoretical ships such as this one and others that, you know, from other timelines or from other universes or that sort of thing. But anyway, I diverged again, you know, on what I was talking about. This particular book is really cool. It's very short, but it's full completely full of really cool art or as much art as possible in terms of what they've been able to find you know based on the information that's out there we know that according to original lore this ship came from you know it's supposed to be what comes at least after the space shuttle and before the enterprise so we know it's it's somewhere in between and the reason it's important let's say is because it actually had the name enterprise on it the way that this ship was designed goes back you know in reality it goes back way 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 before any of the movies or or any of the latest tv shows it goes back even before star trek because what happened was they were looking to come up with a design for the enterprise and matt jeffries and that's a name that's important in star trek because if you remember the Jeffries tubes, named after Jeffries, uh, was the artist who did a lot of the conceptual design for Star Trek, the original television series. And when trying to come up with a design for the Enterprise, the design we know today, he went through a couple of different variations, and this was one of them. This was an abandoned Enterprise design that, at the time, Gene Roddenberry wasn't too hot on, uh, so he kind of passed on it, but they kept it, you know, in, in the files. And then later, when the motion picture was being put together, and it was decided they needed a scene where Ilea would be um, taken to the rec room, and you could see in the walls all the different paintings of all the different enterprises, and Decker is telling her, well, that's the, you know, these are the different enterprises, they have the same name as the ship, and blah, blah, blah. You kind of see that there is one there that just does not look right. It looks really bizarre looking. It doesn't look very Starfleet-ish or, or even what we know today, you know, even a space shuttle looking thing. It looks something out of 2001. You know, it's very different. And basically what had happened at the time was that that's what he did. He was able to bring back that design to kind of fill in the gap, you know, between the history of the ships. But even before that... When Gene Roddenberry was trying to start another series that I believe never made it to air, another space exploration kind of series, after the original Star Trek uh, television show, Jeffries had once again tapped into that model 
to see if it would be a considerable one. But at this particular point, you know, the show never came to air, so they never, you know, they were never able to go full tilt on it. That's why he was able to save it for the motion picture. And the history of the ship in terms of what its function is, it's a little sketchy because obviously the cannon hadn't been set completely straight. At some point, it's an exploration ship. At some other point, it could have been a luxury liner. But the bottom line is that by the time they get to the motion picture, or even afterwards in other references, it's basically the precursor to the Enterprise. It's it's a Starfleet ship, but possibly not before we have Starfleet as an official organization. That design also, you know, not exactly the same one, but the concept of having rings around the ship was later reused a couple of times on some of the television shows. Enterprise, for example, used it a number of times. We've seen it on some of the Vulcan ships, some of the more modern Vulcan ships, let's say. You know, them having a ring around connected to the main fuselage of the ships. There was even an episode about Archer testing, or I don't know if it was Archer or his father, testing an earlier model of the Enterprise that looked like a combination of these two ships. It had the, the traditional engines and saucer that an Enterprise has, but then beyond the engines, there was rings around the two very similar to this so yeah it 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 seems to be a concept that you they just cannot seem to abandon now later on speaking of enterprise the beginning of the show enterprise for some reason moved away from including this ship as part of the canon if you guys remember the opening of the show features drawings kind of like black and white or brown and white like sepia tone drawings of a sailing ship and a carrier and a space shuttle and then the Enterprise from Enterprise, completely bypassing the 330. So that's interesting how at that point they decided to kind of skip it. Now, as I mentioned before, some of the previous encyclopedias have added this ship as part of the canon, Star Trek encyclopedias. The date seems to fluctuate sometimes. Some of them are listed as 2123 as their launch date. Some other sources might have different dates, but this is where it kind of seems to fall. And in a way, it kind of works with this other shipyards book that I was telling you about, because this shipyard book starts in 2151. So you could also say, well, the reason why it's also not in shipyards is because it's before this history. So you would have to kind of figure that out. Now, what's interesting is that for the movie First Contact... As you probably remember in a lot of the um, Next Generation episodes, uh, when you go to the ready room, there's displays of of ships. Like I think they were like half sculpts embedded into the walls and their gold cover or something like that. Well, apparently for First Contact, they had made also this ship to be a part of that display. But for whatever reason, again, at the last minute, they decided not to use it. So it, it kind of was made and then removed. Now, as I mentioned on Enterprise, they brought it back in different forms. There's apparently also a scene having to do with that episode that I mentioned about testing the older ships, where the uh, all these astronaut pilots are gathering at a bar, and in the back of the bartender's main console, on the wall, you could see a painting of this ship too. So it's funny how little by little they still try to incorporate it, you know, into the canon of the show. It's like somebody's remembering about it. And uh, again, according to this little booklet here, the Okudas, uh, who are the, 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 the 
husband and, and wife couple who have been working in Trek for a very long time, doing a lot of the design and that sort of thing. They even created a patch for the pilots that have been on that ship. Or, you know, like they do patches for uh, all the different flights of the shuttles. Well, they, they had even created one as part of the set, but I don't even... I, I think it, it was really hard to see it, but it was part, you know, it was included, apparently. Now, fast forward to 2011, and they apparently put out a calendar, because Star Trek, just like most properties, they put out calendars every year, called Ships of the Line Calendar. Ooh. And one of the pages apparently had a 330 as part of one of these different months of different ships. And it was a beautiful painting of the ship that seems to be passing by like near a very large asteroid. And it's a great rendition, artistic rendition of the ship. You know, it's funny because I do remember... I think I remember seeing the calendar, but I never actually like opened it to see all the different ones that were inside different ships. But that's a that's a really interesting one uh, that I completely didn't know about. What's interesting about this particular painting that was made for the calendar was that right around that time there was a company called QMX who was interested in turning that ship into a model, and they went forward pretty deep into possibly manufacturing it. And I've seen ads or I've seen links to the company and it offering that ship, you know, similar to what I have here, but a lot bigger. It would be about a foot long, even more detailed, super gorgeous looking, I guess, prototype, you know, the pictures that I've seen. And it would have been limited to 25 units, I think at about $1,500 a pop. So, as far as I can tell, it either didn't get enough funding or enough buyers or something, because according to this booklet, it says that the project was abandoned. So what's interesting about that is that they used a lot of the specs and a lot of the art uh, from the calendar, specifically from that particular picture, obviously, you know, from that artist to create what was going to be this new one. Now, again, fast forward a little bit more, go to the... J.J. Abrams' Star Trek film, specifically the second one, Into Darkness, the controversial Into Darkness, there's a scene in the film, if you remember, of Admiral Marcus, played by Peter Weller, and in his, he's talking to uh, Kirk, I believe, if I remember right, and in his office, he has all along the perimeter of his, uh, of his desk and in the back and near the windows, all these models of Starfleet ships, memorable Starfleet ships, and one of them is the 330. And the backstory is that that same company, QMX, was able to supply them with that ship for the film. So I guess, uh, you know, uh, the, the prototype they made, they were able to, uh, I don't know, maybe make it, make it bigger, or maybe they used the same exact one, I don't know. But somehow that ship made it <laughs> into another movie that's canon. Now, granted, it's now in an alternate timeline. So that's where you kind of start to say, well, okay, I guess that's why it doesn't really count, but it's still there in the mix. And then from there, you jump forward to now, to Eagle Moss, which has the rights and has been putting out the, again, it is a fantastic little ship. It is bigger than I thought it would be, like I said before. The rest of the book, I guess in order to kind of pad the book a little more, has a couple of extra pages I would say one, two, three, four, six extra pages called The Lost Aliens, The Motion Pictures Lost Aliens. 
and it chronicles all these different species of aliens in the motion picture. A little bit of how the customs were made and a little bit of the background of what these different alien races are supposed to be and pictures of them that originally were supposed to be a little more prominent in the motion picture, but for whatever reasons they decided they don't look real enough, so they kind of relegated them to the background. But it's cool because they give you a little more information on because you've seen some of these pictures before, even around the time of the movie. And a lot of times you were like, well, what the heck does this mean? You know, I don't remember seeing them in the movie. Where are they? You have to look really hard in the background. Some of them do kind of pop up every now and then, but they did, you could tell, they did kind of hit them. Some of them were actually made into action figures for that original Mego Star Trek the motion picture line and they are still to this day one of the hardest ones to find is the alien creatures but that's another cool aspect about this little booklet they give you is that they give you a little more information little bonus information that has nothing to do with that ship but it has to do with the motion picture which is where we first got to see the design for the ship again if this is the type of thing you're into pick it up it's a fantastic ship I would say it's very difficult uh, not to want to own more because if this is the quality of some of these things and again i'm familiar with the j the enterprise j and the quality was fantastic but it was much smaller this one my god it's just fantastic looking ship and with discovery now being on i would absolutely love if they were able to at some point incorporate it into the show uh, granted the show takes place a little later many many years after this ship has been around uh but you never know they might be able to kind of find one or maybe a time travel episode or maybe an alternate timeline episode hell you know they've been to the mirror mirror universe so we know that they can go to different timelines so i would love it because this is exactly the type of thing where a less advanced starfleet would interact so well with this kind of a design of a ship and it could really really i mean again for for star trek fans this would be such a great bone to throw at them because this it, it's a perfect little niche fanboy moment to be able to incorporate this and really explore it you know really put some you know meat into it but that's just you know me wishing out loud all right i hope you guys enjoyed today's show We've started off with our Darth Vader poster, our classic Darth Vader poster, and as much information as possible behind the making of that poster from the different other posters that were shot and put out around that same time for that line of posters. The background of how it was kind of photoshopped to include additional items. The actual person behind the mask, who is not the person that most people might think is behind that mask, and the other different appearances that person made, we are going to include in our linked videos as many of the different appearances that are available in YouTube, for example, of all these different shows and appearances that were made by this individual. And we'll also include an interview that he recently gave to another podcast called Skywalking Through Neverland. They're a very Star Wars and Disney-centric kind of show, but they managed to track him down and interview him on a lot of these different appearances that he made, so that's a little, little bonus link we're going to throw at you guys. Plus, I hope you also enjoyed our Enterprise 330 Eagle Moss review 
of this miniature ship that Eagle Moss has put out, and including the booklet that gives you a lot more information, you know, I absolutely love about that ship. I hope, and I'm pretty sure one day we will see this ship featured on one of these modern shows or films, who knows, but I have a feeling sooner or later we're going to be seeing it again. So, on behalf of everybody here, thanks for listening, and we will see you soon here at GeekFest France. Bye-bye, everybody. Kronos. Yes, sir. So Harrison's gone to the Klingon homeworld. Is he defecting? Uh, we're not sure, he sir. He has taken refuge in the Ketha province, a region uninhabited uh, for He's got to be hiding there, sir. He knows if we even go near Klingon space, it'd be all-out war. Starfleet can't go after him, but I can. Please, sir. All-out war with the Klingons is inevitable, Mr. Kirk. If you ask me, it's already begun. Since we first learned of their existence, the Klingon Empire has conquered and occupied two planets that we know of, fired on our ships half a dozen times. They are coming our way. London was not an archive. It was a top-secret branch of Starfleet designated Section 31. They were developing defense technology and training our officers to gather intelligence on the Klingons and any other potential enemy who means to do us harm. Harrison was one of our top agents. Well, now he's a fugitive, and I want to take him out. Pike always said you were one of our best and brightest. You should have heard him defend you. He's the one who talked to you in the joining Starfleet, wasn't he? Yes, sir. Did he ever tell you who talked to him in the joining? His death is on me. And yours can't be. Sir, please, all I... You said the province where Harrison is hiding is uninhabited? Affirmative, sir. It's part of our defensive strategy. 31 developed a new photon torpedo. Long-range and untraceable. It would be invisible to Klingon sensors. I don't want you hurt, but I want to take him out. You park on the edge of the neutral zone, you lock on to Harrison's position, you fire, you kill him, and you haul ass. Permission to reinstate Mr. Spock as my first officer. Granted. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone. Copyright 2019. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots Radio Network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>